Welcome to Pressing Issues. This is the podcast, as you all know, as is recorded in the ever-important, absolutely existing Pressing Issues wiki. We are the podcast that takes two comic series and presses them together. Two comic series generally with thematic similarities, and then we find out which which pops out on top. Um, I'm your host, Rowan. We're going a bit rogue this week. This is maybe, uh, as as always, it's our best episode yet, but um, this is perhaps our most rogue episode yet. Um, Joe, unfortunately, is not with me today. Um, I'm about to explain why. But yes, unfortunately, we were due to finish off our Comics Go Hollywood miniseries with the infamous, not actually really a movie, but... Hollywood enough, uh, Dune, and that will still be coming. I promise, fingers crossed, uh, it's going to happen. But um, Joe came back from America. Joe's really busy. <laughs> I did have a, a guest host lined up to talk with me, um, but uh, they got COVID, unfortunately. <laughs> so the odds were really stacked in my favor. So you know what? Uh, I, I conferred with Cohen. Uh, who was also not here, and I conferred with Joe. And you know what? I just thought you and me listeners, we're just going to have a little bit of intimate time. Um, We're going to, yeah, we're going to touch back on Dune soon, I promise. But um, I thought I would kind of just take this time to delve into what I know best, which is comics, and um, thought I'd rattle off a little bit of um, what I've been reading lately, you know? Um, and, you know, because comics is kind of perceived as such a inaccessible medium, I think, um, I thought I'd give like a couple of tips on like how I feel, what, what I feel at entry points and yeah, just what I've been reading at the moment. That's like kind of my top five reads and, um, yeah, all the different kind of subsections of the medium that we can encapsulate. So we'll talk a little about manga. We'll talk a bit about, uh, Maybe Bunday Destiny. I hadn't prepared for it. I'm kind of doing this off the cuff, but um, that's that's European comics. But you know, we'll we'll see what we can we can get into. Um, but yeah, so let's touch on a couple of little updates first. Let's talk about Joe Brown. God bless the sweet man. Um, so Joe Brown, for those who didn't know, is actually directing uh, Rebecca Hurd, his partner's uh, one woman comedy stand-up series, or not series actually, comedy stand-up play The Long Haul. Um, By the time you guys will have listened to this, uh, it will have already played, but absolutely just, uh, I wanted to bump it because um, as as casual and fun as Joe Brown seems, uh, he's really talented. He's got a master's in like playwriting uh, I'm probably going to completely butcher what it is exactly, so I'm just going to leave it at that. But, um, yeah, he's he's directing Rebecca Hurd, his partner's play, The Long Haul. Um, it's based on a true story. Um, I think I, I absolutely deserves a plug here <laughs> to, to everyone who can hear about it, even if it has played. I absolutely shower him with support. Um, yeah, Rebecca Hurd... The story there is about how they, the two of them kind of broke up over COVID and they got back together. I'll, I'm actually going to see it in a matter of hours, so I have no doubt that it's going to be great. Um, kind of the, the catch to that, it seems to me, is that Joe, the one who broke, broke the whole thing up controversially is the one that's directing the play. Um, so I think it'd be excellent. Like, those two really know what they're doing. Rebecca's done a one-woman show before, and she's fantastic. Um, yeah. If you've seen it, let us know. Shower us with uh, glowing reviews only. Don't say anything negative. Otherwise, I will find you, and I will have a big sook to you. So, yeah, just think about that but um yeah i wanted to plug that 
the long haul. Gonna see it tonight. By the time that you're listening to this, it's already done and you will see all the glowing reviews. Um, yeah. What else can we touch on? What else has been happening? Oh, yeah. So, Colin, um, bless his soul, sweet producer, currently volunteering at a festival right now, um, has also been getting up to his own... Uh, so, so the last issue we talked about, Terminator, right? Last issue, I say issue, but it's the last episode. Uh, I'm deep in comics thought at the moment. The last episode we talked about Terminator where I watched five Terminator movies in a row, which kind of broke my brain a little bit, but the experience was fun. The live tweeting aspect of it was really fun to the pressing issues chat, even if it was only to them. A fun little exercise on um, how to consume five movies in a row which I wouldn't recommend to anyone. But um, Cohen kind of took it upon himself to embark on his own movie binging journey. Uh, We were kind of... We we were listening at work to the Cars soundtrack and um, it was kind of decided that Cohen was going to go home and binge all the Cars movies. So, yeah... Comics tangential, but I think it's really important. Can't had <laughs> a bit of a time. Um, maybe, maybe we'll do a cars episode. Hit us up, email us, <laughs> tweet at me. Um, and and yeah, Con really had some thoughts. Really had some fantastic, concise little reviews of each cars movie. I think it was kind of a U-bending quality, where it started off pretty good, the second one was kind of dog shit, and the third one, we came back up again. Uh, Cohen is yet to watch Planes. We know that's part of the Cars uh, quadrilogy, the Cars universe, if you will. So uh, we'll, we'll get him on mic to talk about Planes. Don't you worry, listeners. But um, the important thing is uh, Cohen is fucking uh, crushing the analysis game and... We will get him on the episode sometime soon. We will hear his sexy, sexy voice in good time. But yeah, um, I guess that's kind of the updates. It's been a while, honestly. It's been two weeks for you. But Joe's been in America and then Joe came back and has been doing the play. And yeah, it's just been a while since we've been on pod. So yeah, let's, um, let's talk about some comics, folks. Let's get into it. So, oh, actually, yeah, one more thing. I did want to mention, uh, if you are at all entrenched in comics and you know about the idea of event comics, which is a very fun concept, uh, event comics is basically what the movie Avengers Infinity War is to comics. It's where every superhero kind of crosses over into a big, uh, conglomerate, not even superhero, just characters and cr- cross over into their own big event story, something that's big enough to contain big enough in scope that it contains multiple characters and it kind of changes the game for all of them, you know. I think the idea, as is defined by Shelf Dust, who I'm about to talk about, is that after the event, uh, the universe is changed irrevocably? Irrevocably. Let's settle on that. Um, Yeah, everything is different. Nothing can ever be the same again after a comic book event. So I wanted to shout out um, Shelf Dust, who is a comic site that I have written for in the past. Um, I wrote a glowing character profile on Mr. Sinister. I think I've talked about it before. You should definitely check it out if you haven't. But Shelf Dust kind of hit up a lot of comic book reviewers, comic book journos on the internet, including me, um, and asked us to submit their top 10 comic events. so, yeah, talking about the concept of that, I guess, you know what, I'll, I'll tell you guys what my list was. I don't know if it will mean <laughs> anything to most of you, but fuck it, like, let's get into it. My top 10 comic book events of all time. Final Crisis, which is a DC comic. Age of Apocalypse, which is a Marvel comic and is incredibly Rowan core, as defined in the Pressing Issues wiki. Uh, Inferno, which is an X-Men crossover, and it's all about how hell came to uh, hell came to America. You know, really lived it up. There was a whole lot of a whole lot of X-Men nonsense. 
Um, we got the Secret Wars. This podcast is really going off the rails. So if you're still here, thank you. God bless. I'll get to the actual comic stuff soon, but this is comics adjacent. Secret Wars 2015, which is an event comic that Joe and I have desperately wanted to cover for so long, and we will. I promise. It's really good. It's got Doctor Doom, and he remakes the universe. It's a good time. Uh, I've got one piece on here, the Marineford War, um, which is, you know, it's part of the One Piece series. It's manga. But I found it kind of enough of an event. Things were not the same afterwards. I mean, rarely they are in One Piece. But yeah, come at me if you want to fight me about it. I would love to discuss. Um, Number six, I've got Infinity Gauntlet, which is a dynamite Marvel crossover. One of the best. Um, Kind of what Infinity War is based on, I suppose. Then I've got Copra, Okazon Saga. Copra is kind of an indie comic by... uh, I apologize if I'm butchering their name, but uh, Michelle Fief, um, who's kind of doing their own auto take on Suicide Squad. Definitely check it out if you haven't. It's a super fun time. It's just like basically a celebration of comics from like the 80s to the late 90s. And it's honestly like Fief has this style of art that looks like it was drawn with like a color pencil. Um, has this kind of really ethereal quality about it um, and really kind of textured shading and, yeah, like a lot of penciling, but it's, it's like, just fantastic. FIFA's one of the best to do it at the moment. Um, I would highly recommend checking out Copra or anything else they've done recently. Uh, number eight was kind of me messing around a bit. Uh, this The event, uh, the Thor annual number one, in which Thor meets Hercules for the first time. Topical, because he did that in the movies, kind of, but I thought it was an event because it's the first time you kind of got that uh, multiple religions existing all at once in the MCU, or in Marvel Comics, rather. That's fun, right? We love that. Number nine is Zero Hour. (laughs) If you want to hear my thoughts about Zero Hour, oh boy, I wrote about that event weekly for the website multiversitycomics.com. Maybe I'll link to this in the podcast description, but (laughs) I basically wrote a book worth of essays about the event Zero Hour, which is a DC Comics event in the 90s, which is kind of bloated and ridiculous, but I love it for that. And then number 10 on my list is DC One Million by my main non-binary regent, Grant Morrison, which is all about what if the (laughs) legacy superheroes of DC from one million issues into the future, not years, uh, came back and had a whole thing. And it's just a a good fun time. Um, Anyway, for those of you, those two of you, I love you guys that are still listening after all this nonsense. Uh, Let's get into some comic recommendations. Um, So I'm just like really going back in my Goodreads list of the last couple of months and I've picked out a couple of comics that I think represent the medium uh kind of diversely and yeah let's just get into it so the first comic that i want to talk about uh is a graphic novel released by avery hill um press which is based in london it's called lights planet people it's written by molly molly naylor and illustrated by lizzie stewart This is a comic that I first became aware of listening to one of my favourite podcasts. Not Pressing Issues, but um, Bitches on Comics, which I've mentioned on this pod before. God bless Sarah Sentry and Essie Fleenor. Those guys are a hoot. Um, But yeah, they interviewed Molly Naylor on the pod uh, talking about this book. And it's kind of had a really fantastic development journey in which it started off as a play uh relevant because you know the long haul and joe brown and rebecca Hurt. but it started off as a play um written by molly naylor uh who really wanted to kind of have this text that she had written as a play in a form that becomes more permanent i guess that you can kind of revisit that doesn't need to be stage showed every time you want to consume it i guess And so she hit up Lizzie Stewart, who I had not been privy to their work before, but holy cannoli, it's good shit. Um, Yeah, 
both of them are London based, uh, or at least England based. Pardon me if I butcher that. But both of them, the 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 kind of the story uh, is about Maggie Hill, our protagonist, who is due to is is kind of like delivering a lecture to students about her career as um, gosh, she's kind of. She works in astronomy. Oh, man, I'm really butchering this. I apologize. But, like, basically she works kind of in a NASA-adjacent role um, but also has bipolar disorder and kind of really struggles with this group of kind of headstrong but rowdy students. Um, and, and then is also at the same time kind of reckoning with her own heartbreak. She is a older woman kind of, I think she's written to be in her sixties or something, but she is an older queer woman and is still dating. And so kind of her failures and successes in dating kind of interweave with how she reconciles with her own successes and failures in her work. Um, it's a really smart comic, the way that the dialogue works. Like, I'm amazed that they were able to ad- adapt something that I-, I assume worked so well for the stage into a comic book. This just fantastically, like, I- I- I'm looking through it now. And honestly, like, when I read this through the first time, I read it all in one go and was, like, ah, distinctly emotional in parts of this. Because it's it's kind of just so raw, and not just because of the narration, but Lizzie Lizzie Stewart's art is really phenomenal. It's super simplistic, and it reminds me a lot of these kind of like web comics of like the late twenty two thousands, early twenty tens. Reminds me a lot of Kate Beaton, Harker Vagrant, um, if you guys know about that. But really simple line work, like. Um, the, the, the eye detailing is literally just like a dot and then lines under the eyes, which as someone that's tried to draw before, like expressions with eyes, like that's amazing that she can get so much emotion out of such a simplistic kind of detailing. Um, yeah. And then the line work is super simplistic, but kind of a lot of the emotion comes from the coloring. Um, and, and Lizzie Stewart uses this really like textured kind of coloring, but really simple, like really quite flat, but I don't mean that in a bad way. It's just like really, you can pinpoint like three or four colors that are used on the page. Um, and yeah, you can kind of see there's scenes where like, uh, Maggie is taking her, her date on a walk around like uh, like a street and there's maybe three colours on the page there, which is like kind of light yellow, uh, which fades into a like darker green, which kind of gives you that suburban uh, kind of gardeny feel. And then that fades into the dark blue of the night. And it's really like kind of beautiful and like not, it's not like a sickly green, but it's just like faint and like pleasant and warm. But there's like, almost a loneliness with it. I'm, I'm really reading deep into it now as I'm on the pod with you guys, but it's really beautiful. And then like whenever she's um, in cafe spaces or in the lecture hall, there's really just like two colors, which is like the bright yellow of lights kind of shining on Maggie, like as she's talking to students and then like an orange cast shadow, which is a really interesting choice because it kind of, really puts Maggie in perspective and it, it, it makes it feel like kind of an aggressive atmosphere, which is how Maggie is taking it as the students kind of ask her questions like, what happened to this uh, rocket launch that kind of was complicated and didn't go through? And it's something that Maggie really doesn't want to touch on. And the colours really work well at evoking that. I really, really love it. Um, yeah, honestly, fantastic book made me openly weep at least three times. Uh, I put it up on my Instagram and I was, I, I, I tagged the creators and Lizzie Stewart um, messaged me and was like, oh, I'm really glad you enjoyed this. And I said, yeah, these are the three pages that I weeped at. And um, maybe I'll put those up as little perfect panels for you guys. But honestly, yeah, 
If you can get it, it's in most bookstores. Lights, Planet, People. It's a fairly quick read, but it hits really hard. It's good queer romance. It's good kind of mental health awareness and visibility. Like, really gets into like a clear version of what bipolar looks like when when you are that and like gets gets behind it all and um and and even like dating in your 60s it's it's really fantastic oh god i just opened up to a double page spread which is uh maggie sitting atop a hill overlooking the town and like oh it's really beautiful like this this is a page where color is used in full force and I'll put this up for you guys too, but Maggie is sitting like a giant looking over the town and kind of really reflects her emotions at the time. And, oh, my God, Lizzie Stewart. Uh, Anyway, Molly Naylor, Lizzie Stewart, Lights, Planet, People from Avery Hill, who are great. Um, They've published a lot of books that I like in the past, so maybe I'll talk about them more later as well. But anyway, moving right along uh let's see let's talk about this book let's talk about this book that i'm pointing to in this entirely visual medium you know how it is folks uh this is more kind of adjacent to what we're used to talking about it's a volume called the milestone compendium number one um and yeah that probably doesn't mean a lot to the general audience listening but Milestone Comics is a imprint of DC Comics that kind of came about in the 90s around the collector boom where superheroes were super profitable for people. Um, And there was a lot of publishers and imprints that popped up around this time that were kind of just cashing in on a lot of this spectator boom and like just like putting together these really carbon copy superheroes and making them a little bit edgy and a little bit 90s to make them sell to the teen audience that was just lapping it up at the time and the people that were buying all the number ones so they could resell it, you know, 50 years down the line like the Superman Action Comics number one. But Milestone kind of came around that time and was perceived as one of these companies, except the the key difference is that Milestone uh, was founded by all black creators um, and whew, I was expecting this to be good because the, the talent in this book, this, this book collects 50 issues from the start of Milestone's publishing history. And yeah, I was expecting this book to be good, but like it really floored me by how kind of raw and political a lot of these comics are. Um, and how like, how well they kind of just do superhero comics in between all that as well. So kind of the main driving force behind this is the late, great Dwayne McDuffie, who passed away semi-recently. Um, no, not recently. I think before 2010. Apologies in advance. But um, Dwayne McDuffie was kind of the head force on this imprint who kind of got a whole bunch of creators like Dennis Cowan, John Paul Leon, another late great artist, um, Criss Cross, um, J.H. Williams III, who's kind of evolved into this absolute industry legend now, but got all these creators together to tell these stories about black superheroes. Um, They range from titles like Hardware, which is a fantastic, just super, super raw, like public enemy, the hip hop group as comics kind of comics. It's about, it's it's kind of like the Black Iron Man, essentially, who makes his own armor under, like, to the ignorance of his white boss who kind of raised him up uh, from a young prodigy in his company and then kind of flaunted him about, like, he's not a human but just an object to be wielded because he's so helpful to the company. Um, and so... Our hero Hardware created his own Iron Man armor, essentially, and went out and kind of sabotaged the company from underneath it. And oh, it's really fantastic. It really just kind of gets into this raw, like, kind of really gets into the 
idea of like the angry black man in the 90s and you know far be it from me to talk about this as a white person but um they're really they're really tapping into something raw but then as the series kind of goes on they get into really good themes of kind of toxic masculinity um and and kind of digging underneath that and what it really means to execute justice on on capitalism, basically, but also in the the greater world. Uh, there's other, the kind of the big surprises, the ones that I really enjoyed in this collection, um, had the most simple premises. Like, hardware's really good, but the one that surprised me was a, a book called Blood Syndicate, which is essentially, it sounds kind of on the nose at first. It's like a what-if a black black like street gang was were all superheroes um and yeah that's kind of the long and short of blood syndicate syndicate but it's really it it's it's kind of the same reason why i like a lot of x-men comics it taps into a lot of like found family like these people are all brought together they're all given powers basically in the middle of a police riot where this special tear gas is ignited that kills a whole bunch of people, but then also mutates a whole bunch of people. Um, and these people are all, you know, mutated to the point that they can't go back home. They can't go to their families. They all kind of band together as found family. And yeah, it's like, it's really fantastic. It's, um, they're, they're kind of young people. They've got really raw kind of ideals. None of them are particularly perfect in any way. Like there's one person who's like a frequent drug user who the rest of the group kind of know about, but a lot of them are turning a blind eye. And oh, there's one person who's basically like the thing from Fantastic Four and really struggles with the image problems. And oh, Blood Syndicate, really good. And then uh, kind of the other one that really surprised me features a Korean-American protagonist. It's called Zombie, spelled X-O-M-B-I. And this kind of taps into that kind of occult superhero nonsense that I really lap up. Anyone who really, you know, knows my kind of fascination with Grant Morrison as a writer knows that I really like the Invisibles to the point that I have an Invisibles tattoo on my forearm. Ask me about it. <laughs> the Invisibles is a really cool kind of 90s occult comic and Zombie kind of taps into that energy as well. And I was really surprised because they are it's kind of a contemporary to Grant Morrison's The Invisibles. Um, and a lot of the, like, they, they tap into this kind of, like, absurd Dada-ist kind of creature design that the, the, the zombie, our main character, is a man that has kind of genetically modified himself but, put like, filled himself with these nanites that uh, he can't be killed, basically. Any injury he sustains, if he puts his arm on another piece of living matter, the nanites will convert that into his own flesh. So, yeah, he's kind of like a zombie, but I, I guess the failing is that he, if he, like, the, the first time he put the nanites in, he accidentally, I guess, spoiler alert for, like, a nearly 30-year-old comic, but he accidentally <laughs> almost, like, ate his assistant with the nanites. That's kind of the tragedy of a zombie. But then it gets into these really, yeah, occult supernatural themes... Uh, he runs into a lot of these really like Dada creatures, like kind of like concepts brought to life, like agony and uh, it's 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 really like it's heady stuff. And I, uh, it's one of those comics that I don't think a lot of people, uh, a lot of people might have a hard time with it, but it's really like cleverly written. It's a bit heavy handed, but I quite like that because there's a lot of passion and research done into it. And if you stick with it a little bit, um, I think it's really fun. Zombie is great and it gets into these really broad ideals of the occult and Dadaism and kind of supernatural stuff. Um, there's a character also in it called None of the Above who is a nun but who she fights occult creatures and, you know, that's just a good time. Um, yeah, but that's the Milestone Compendium. It's really, it's a real brick of a book, but it's not a hardcover I think it, like, comes pretty cheap. Um, DC put it out. And, yeah, it's in most comic stores. Kinokonia King's Comics. I'd highly recommend that for sure. Um, yeah. Fuck it, guys. Let's move on. What have I got next on the agenda? Uh, yeah. So this... 
now we're talking about another graphic novel released in a small format like Lights, Planets, People. Um, this is called Squire, which is published by Harper Alley and Quilt Tree Books. Uh, I believe they're imprints of HarperCollins. But Squire is written by Nadia Shamas and Sarah, Sarah Alphagy. Alphagy, uh, apologies to those guys if I'm completely butchering your names. But um, these are two pretty recent creators and... I heard about this book because I follow Nadia Shamas um, on Twitter and saw her post a lot about this. And a lot of the comics community kind of really rise up around it and talk about it. And uh, I knew Nadia as an ed- editor, not personally, but like, um, yeah, she's just one of those people. She's a Palestinian American and she really like supports uh, minorities and queer voices, which uh obviously i'm a big fan of but squires are really oh it's a fantastic book it's probably one of the most recent out of these lot that i've read but it's essentially about a teenage girl isa who has like dreams of kind of joining this army um from a country that has basically kind of colonized her um And her parents are kind of like, don't do it. Like, that's completely against our way of life. But the colonizers have kind of glorified the image of being a knight in this army so much that, like, it's kind of penetrated into her brain and she has to do it. So she goes and she does it, um, joins the army, meets a whole... This kind of taps into what I was talking about with Blood Syndicate, where it taps into a lot of found family. Um, In the... She's training to become a squire in the army of the... Beit Saji Empire, um, which is the colonizers, basically, um, and a lot of the, a lot of the academy that Isa is in is kind of made up of people from all different like uh, countries and colonies that Beit Saji have kind of oppressed and kind of absorbed into like a homogenous kind of thing and. Yeah, it's a really, really good book that kind of tackles the idea of empire and, like, kind of the glorification of war, especially as a book that starts so hard on being like, yeah, it's such a cool thing to be a knight, and then really digs into how colonizers and the empire and just any people in positions of power can twist what it means to do the right thing for your country and do the right thing for your empire. It's a really smart, really fantastic book. And, um, yeah, the art by Sarah Alphagy is really fantastic as well. It's kind of a more simplistic style with this beautiful uh, digital colouring as well. But um, the, the line work is quite loose. And um, I remember hearing this in an interview with Nadia that she says that the art kind of, as the book progresses you can see Sarah kind of progress as an artist as well and become a bit more bold in panel structure and things like that. And that's definitely true as I'm flicking through this now, not to, not to downplay the start of the book, but like, which is fantastic as well. There's some really cool designs and art. Um, But just like as the book goes, there's some really fantastic storytelling decisions. Like, uh, Nadia, I think in the back matter talks in her, like in, in the back matter of the book, I mean, has, has essays about like the making of the book and talks a lot about like, um, their influences. Um, and there's a lot of manga influence in there, like full metal alchemist. I can kind of see a lot of, I think she mentions that as well, but, um, interestingly, it's like a fantasy book, but there's no magical elements. And I think. I know that was like a very intentional choice on the creators and it reflects really well because it's it's fantasy and this is a very shallow touchstone, but I, I know she mentions it as well. It's kind of like where you have the Tolkien fantasy at the moment and the George R. R. Martin fantasy and Rings of Power and House of the Dragon. This leans more towards the political side, I guess, with the George R. 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 Martin stuff, which is a shallow look at it, but... Basically, what I'm trying to say is this is a fantasy land that can kind of be adapted to Palestinian nations or like a lot of um, Arab kind of countries that um, Nadia and Sarah are kind of drawing influence from and trying to 
like they've clearly done their research in a lot of this book and it really shows. Um, and even just like the dialogue and the little emotes that these characters do is so much fun. And you can tell a lot of the manga influences come through here. Like um, Isa often kind of has these moments to the side where she will kind of like facepalm or do something stupid. And it just like makes the dialogue a lot more, very teenagery, I think, in a in a very important way that grounds the character in like this is a, this is a teenager that has been like swept up by the kind of glory of being in the army and stuff, and so it's important that she acts like a teenager because of that, I think. But then she really grows through the story. It's it's really fantastic, Squire. If you can get your hands on this, and yeah, obviously another big recommendation. Um, the art's really beautiful, as I said. The writing is really clever. There's a chapter in which all the the kind of main characters, including Isa and the characters you meet around her, all send letters back to their families. And oh, it's really, it's like very clever method of storytelling in which it gives you a lot about these characters and their motivations in these letters not in just like the content of the letters, but even in how they visually look, like their handwriting. It's just, it's like really well done. The lettering here is fantastic because it kind of has personalized to each person. And even there's, there's a character that's kind of much more of a, comes from like a rich family and it's much more of a stickler for the rules. And so has a bit more of a cold family. And when they're addressing their father, who's a military general, they keep crossing out. They kind of start off, with something that's quite adjacent to basically saying, hey, dad, to crossing that out five different ways and eventually coming to, like, uh, to the general lord, I forget their name, but a very cold, impersonal way of addressing the man who's your father. And it's in very formal kind of handwriting, whereas in the opposite, Isa's is, like, simple and kind of, like, scrawled and just excited-looking. It's a really, like, every aspect of this book is super well composed. It was released this year, so it's very modern. So if you read this, you'll seem very cool and modern and, like, you are on trend. So that's just a little tip from your older sibling, Rowan, right there. Um, yeah, let's keep going. I only have a couple more, so don't worry. Like, um, but these are some really good ones. Um, doubling away from... Squire being a very modern book released this year, um, I kind of went the opposite direction with some of my manga reading, and I've been looking at a lot of Asamu Tezuka's work. And this is kind of a double recommendation in one, kind of a multiple recommendation, because I feel like you can read any of Asamu Tezuka's work and have a good time. But basically, Asamu Tezuka is kind of considered the god of manga or of early manga, in the same way that Jack Kirby, um, who who co-created a lot of things with Stan Lee, is kind of considered the king of comics in the West. But Asamu Tezuka is most infamous for creating Astro Boy, which I haven't read. Um, and I kind of do want to. I've just never gotten around to it. But has uh, Tezuka just has like a huge body of work that he was kind of constantly creating and has an art style that reflects a very workman method of telling stories. Like it's very simple, very kind of, I feel like influenced by early Walt Disney cartoons has that kind of light line work um, and kind of, but, but, but it's also very, that very protean idea of what anime is with like big eyes, big heads, little bodies. Um, but, but it's not in like a stylistic way. It's just in a very storytelling efficient way. And the two works that I have to recommend of his with me now, um, they're quite contemporary to each other, well, contemporary-ish, um, uh, Dororo, The Omnibus, which is, it was published in the 60s um, and is kind of like a samurai feudal Japan tale with supernatural elements. Um, and then I have... The Book of Human Insects, which if you follow me on Instagram, I think I posted about it a decent amount, but <laughs> this book is really fantastic. It's kind of this really ooh, overused work, but it's, it's, it's like very dank Japanese kind of crime drama. Um, it's very much like those 70s kind of exploitation films, but in manga form. And um, 
yeah, so I'll, I'll, I'll kind of get into that book first. Apologies for all the handling noises. I'm not Cohen. I'm not very good at my sound editing or audio recording, but bear with me. But the book of human insects is uh, kind of just like absolutely it's it's really phenomenal phenomenal in its craft but it's essentially and it sounds very exploitative by this rendition of the story but it's essentially about a woman who's incredibly talented but the way that she gets these talents is she kind of becomes these understudies to great men in all different kinds of industries um like she starts out as in, in, in a theatre group and she studies the idea of kind of chameleoning other people and kind of personality types. And eventually kind of the, the twist that is seen every time is that she kind of swoops in at the last second when the leader or her kind of mentor is about to submit something great or submit a great like work to a company or a writer that she's studying under is about to submit their work to a publisher or something like that. And she kind of does her own version, kind of <laughs> does the like, let me look at your homework, but I'll change it a little bit. Um, and and kind of steals the thunder of that mentor just before they can attain great success. And then she attains great success in, um, in their place. And it's kind of like... <sighs> it puts her in a really interesting position because it gets into what the mentality of someone who is like that is like and what kind of her background is like and how uh, how the characters that interact with her kind of ripple and change after they've been kind of manipulated by her essentially and yeah it's it's a fascinating piece of work there are so many points in this where i was like oh no this is getting it's it's the very seventies text written by like, you know, a Japanese man, but like a man, nonetheless. Um, there is tr- trigger warning, I guess, for there is some sexual violence, but it's never. I don't know. It's really tricky to kind of navigate this, but it it always kind of ends up in uh, the protagonist Toshiko she's kind of always orchestrated it. It's always kind of turns out in her favor. Um, It's always kind of another notch in her belt to be able to manipulate the person that she's with. And it's kind of a very, it it is like a shallow shallow look at like gender politics, but it's done really cleverly as well. And it kind of puts everyone on the same level where the people that she's dealing with are very despicable, but then also she is kind of inherently despicable as well. But it also just like gets into these just like really interesting kind of backgrounds of the characters and they all kind of intermingle and kind of end up in the same way. And yeah, the, the, the story it's, it's hard to summarize and do it justice. Um, maybe this book isn't for everyone. If you're kind of hearing me detail the story a little bit and uh, a little bit repelled by it, maybe, maybe you can check out the other Tezuka work that I have with me today, but I think it's a really fascinating book and the art is absolutely fantastic. As I said, Tezuka has a very simplistic kind of style. There's like, this isn't modern manga that's full of speed lines and like kind of really loose line work. It's, it's very efficient in its kind of storytelling real estate. There's little lines, um, that kind of detail bodies, but it's just like, Asama Tezuka is not wasting any ink. And that's kind of the manga industry at the time, right? Because they're printing on really cheap paper. They're trying to get these books out with like as little cost as possible. So they're trying, Tezuka is trying to be really efficient with the amount of lines that are on the page. And there's just so much good techniques for like conveying darkness or conveying like kind of character, which is why the kind of big eyed, uh, kind of anime trope became so big because it's like just a really easy way of conveying emotion. It kind of accentuates what are the best emotional vehicles of the body, I suppose. And yeah, it's really fantastic. And the fashion in this is very kind of seventies. Uh, there are a couple of unfortunate visual stereotypes of black people. Um, 
not much I can say in the excuse there because like it, it was Japan in the 70s, but also the 70s was kind of a pop culture was big enough that you shouldn't really be making these kind of mistakes. But yeah, so kind of be aware of that. Tezuka does fail in that manner. But um, the rest of the book is just really, the craft is really, <sighs> I'm really struggling with this one. But like the cityscapes are really um, kind of dense and intricate. Like there's lots of kind of 70s trappings with these dark streets lit by kind of flashes of light on every building. And yeah, it's like a very grimy book, but if you kind of like that very 70s exploitation film, I'm trying to think of like contemporaries like it, but anyway, The Book of Human Insects, worth checking out. A rough one, but it's worth checking out. Rough in the best possible way, I think. But the other Asamu Tezuka text I have, that's kind of the other end of the spectrum, Dororo, which is this samurai tale. <laughs> and it kind of, I, I've been thinking about it a lot over the last week because it has this kind of fantastic, almost superhero-esque origin tale for its hero, whose name is Hyakimaru. Uh, and Hyakimaru's father was a general who really wanted to kind of conquer the land. And so he kind of accosted these 48 demons and was like, please, like, give me the power to conquer the land. I'll sacrifice anything. And they demand that he sacrifices his unborn son, but not all of him. <laughs> he basically sacrifices all uh, 48 body parts of his unborn son to the 48 demons who all take a different cut, basically. And so the son is born like this kind of weird little like shell, like chrysalis without eyes, like... It's really creepy, and Tezuka, who has this kind of cutesy style, really leans into, like, it's still simple and cute, but it's very disturbing. Um, yeah, yeah, this, like, little husk of a human, basically, who the the general and his uh, mother, who's, like, a little bit, like, tragic, but is also complicit in basically putting him in a basket and throwing him down the river, which is an interesting, like, Christianity would have been kind of infecting Japan around at this point. So it's almost like an interesting Christ-like figure. But eventually um, the baby, the little chrysalis baby Hyakimaru is picked up um, by a local, like, engineer doctor who uh, <laughs> figures out that this strange little husk baby can telepathically talk to him. And keeps asking him to feed him. And so he kind of fashions all these limbs and it's very sweet and kind of almost like Pinocchio's him into becoming a real human and gives him all these like eyes and hair and all these parts. Um, but eventually realizes that uh, because he's attached to these supernatural elements, these demons who keep coming after him, uh, he can't keep looking after Hiyakimaru. Otherwise, his village and his family is just going to be keep constantly getting accosted by demons but what this doctor does is he kind of outfits Yakimaru with all these hidden swords so he can he can like pull off his false arm and reveal the sword underneath and it's all very silly but it's all it's like played completely straight and it's super fun and it's basically the adventure of him finding this little boy named Dororo who's renowned as like the greatest child thief in all the land and they kind of band together um, again, another running theme of found family, but it's really sweet and they kind of look after each other and Hyakimaru is trying to constantly escape for his demons, but um, Dororo is just looking for family basically because his story I won't spoil because it's really touching, but he's basically the orphan of like bandits. Um, yeah, this one, it starts out a little bit grisly. Grizzly is not maybe the right word because this is still a very cutesy art style. But it's very much, yeah, it's kind of going for shock at the start. But as the story kind of goes on, it kind of leans off this grizzly aspect, this kind of more violent side of Tezuka, and kind of leans more on the emotional side and has these really, like, drawn-out fights, less with the demons and more with humans and more kind of getting into what, what Hyakimaru and Dororu kind of hold dear. It's really fantastic. Um, 
I would say I can recommend this one more than the Book of Human Insects, although that book is really interesting in its own right. But yeah, this is a really fun comic. It's good if you really like samurai stuff. Um, gets into a lot of really cool class stuff as kind of Hyakumaru remeets his father, who's become this big feudal kind of corrupt lord. And yeah, it's really fantastic. Tezuka gets into some really cool detailing of environments, drawing these like beautiful feudal Japanese forests and like buildings and hutches. And all the fights are really cleverly drawn out. And especially like all the demons are very uh, kind of... Very like a Tezuka, almost Disney style of this kind of classic Japanese art style where it evokes a lot of that kind of uh, calligraphy, brushwork, drawings of demons and things like that. Very swirly, very kind of ethereal drawings of these supernatural beings. Um, And it is cutesy, but they are very monstrous and big and they kind of absorb the whole page whenever they're on it in all their different forms and yeah again it's really efficient in like its storytelling and its line usage Tezuka like it really just goes to show how much this person kind of revolutionized comics as someone who is a big Jack Kirby fan I almost hesitate to say that Tezuka had more of an effect on comics as a whole just because he kind of did so much in different like different genres um so yeah definitely check this out it's like a really kind of important like comics historical artifact but just a really good story in its own right as well all right moving on to my last recommendation of the day uh a lot of my friends might know me for harping a lot about this series but this is um again another manga but it is a more recent manga series it is the shonen jump published manga called chainsaw man And boy, is it a hoot, but then boy, did it make me sad. Uh, It's, yeah, it's it's almost a tough one to me for me to recommend to people who don't read a lot of manga because it kind of plays with a lot of pre-established ideas on uh, like modern anime and manga and kind of flips them to what you'd expect. But um, it's really good. Basically, the kind of... The hook here is that our hero Denji is this poor young man who will... He, he's very simple and happy-go-lucky, and he has a very simple life of going and hunting demons for money. And he has a little uh, a pet dog called Pachita, or Pachita, I don't know how you pronounce it, but he's basically a little demon dog. Um, and Denji comes very close to dying in one of these demon fights, and Pachita reveals that he can kind of fuse with him and become this being called the chainsaw devil in which <laughs> uh, his body is reconstructed after the bit dying to these demons and he can pull a rip cord on his chest and uh, chainsaws will kind of pop from every possible <laughs> limb that he has. Like he has a chainsaw for a head, chainsaws coming out of his arms. It's very absurd and silly, but it's like, oh, like the, the creator Tatsuki Fujimoto has this, super like energetic frenetic energy this is kind of uh kind of the opposite of tezuka who has a very simple style this is using lots of line work lots of like splatter ink splatter to create very textured fights that are like busy but like just oh just like chock-a-block full of action and like you really feel the oomph of every shot and like uh, fair warning, because this is, you know, this is a guy who has chainsaws coming out of every limb. This is quite a grisly manga, but ooh, it's really good. But then beyond that, it gets into some really, really heady stuff, like quite nihilistic themes about Denji kind of realizes that he has very simple things that he wants from life, which is basically like he wants to like go and date a girl, like you know, and then more lewd things like go and like see, like touch boobs basically, which is, you know, go off King, but then kind of achieves these goals and then doesn't really know what more he wants from life. And it gets a lot deeper into that. And kind of, he meets these other friends who are devil hunters as well with their own special abilities. And what I really like about this manga is that there is a lot of kind of violence and action and stuff, and that's all good and fine in its own right. But um, the creator, Tatsuki Fujimoto, who does the writing and the art, 
spends a lot of like kind of downtime with these characters just hanging out with each other like denji has this best friend who is a demon called power who is beautiful and amazing and just like a character completely eccentric who just does whatever she wants and thinks she's great um and you know like they do a lot of devil hunting and saving each other's butts from stuff but also they will just like go and hang out go to the local mall and get something to eat and you kind of they just like have conversations with each other and they're kind of getting to know each other as well and it's not like it's not always i mean overall in the overall scheme of things it is plot relevant because it builds a meaningful relationship between the two but what they're doing isn't directly tied to the devil hunting or anything they're just like literally hanging out in an apartment or they're like watching a movie together and Tatsuki Mo- Fujimoto is really good at these quiet moments that really stand out in the midst of this like hardcore violence. Um, yeah, Chainsaw Man is phenomenal. Like, I I'd kind of been reading it on and off. I I reviewed the first issue or the first chapter when it came out for Multiversity Comics, and that kind of blew my mind then with just its command of like a more violent telling of the kind of manga superhero, but yeah, I'd been kind of following the volumes as they released in paperback as well. And I only really just finished it recently and that's why it's on my recent recommendations. But yeah, every volume is beautiful and like spends so much time with its characters and like these really heady concepts, but just like, oh, Chainsaw Man is is, is visceral and kind of really beautiful. And it's like, just when we all thought that it was going to finish, it kind of popped a little, anyway, that's the end of part one kind of moment. So it's still going today. <laughs> and apparently it's still phenomenal. So part one is finished, uh, which I think is chapters one to 97. It seems like a lot, but it's very breezy read. If you're at all interested in manga and kind of want a more thoughtful take on action manga I guess and what it means to be someone who always wants to fight and always and has like these supernatural abilities and kind of digging into the personality behind a person that just wants to fight and wants very simple things definitely check out Chainsaw Man Uh, Tatsuki Fujimoto also does a lot of really other good other really good works such as Goodbye Airy I haven't read it but everyone who has read it who's talked to me about it says it's phenomenal um, little one shots that don't have anything to do with the Chainsaw Man, but are just really good side stories and kind of once and done, one and done rather. Woo, this has been an episode, guys. Anyway, that's it, I guess. That's Rowan's recommendation corner. This went on roughly about the time that I expected it to. But um, yeah, thanks for being with me. <laughs> I really tried to wrangle this episode together. If you've made it all the way to the end, bless you. Uh, yeah, we did it together, guys. That's some comics. If you want to hear me talk more about comics, like as like more, you know, obviously I do with Joe and I can't wait for Joe to get back on here and we're going to talk about June, believe me. And then we've got some other exciting content coming up for you. But yeah, just hit me up if you want like re- recommendations of just what I've been reading or modern comics or... um, Oh, yeah, I guess I was also going to talk about how to get into comics, which is... Basically, the long and short about that is there is no good way. Mm, I think I've talked about on podcasts where my first volume of comics was like number two of a deep, deep X-Men series. And like, I kind of just figured it all out from there. So if, you know, if there's like a superhero character interested in kind of just like jump in wherever looks good. And like, there's so many luxuries nowadays, like wikis and like reading lists that you can dive into. Like, honestly read widely read deeply read what looks appealing like i even if you're reading stuff that's like objectively bad as long as you kind of keep reading i think it kind of really informs what you can perceive as good in comics and what you can perceive as bad um yeah basically the long short is there is no right or wrong answers but if you just want recommendations for things to read hit me up maybe i'll do another episode of these but yeah for now I'm going to run through it again, but it will be in the in the podcast description. We talked about Lights, Planet, People by Molly Neller and Lizzie Stewart. Talked about the Milestone Companion Volume 1, which is out by DC Comics. Talked about Squire, which is uh, Nadia Shamnas and Sarah, Sarah Alphagy. 
Um, we talked about two Asamu Tezuka books, The Book of Human Insects and Dororo, and of course, Tatsuki Fujimoto's Chainsaw Man. Thank you so much again, guys. I'll go through the plugs. Uh, you can find me at Rowan K. Grover. You can find the podcast, Pressing Issues Pod, on Twitter, um, Pressing Issues Podcast on Instagram. Um, you can find Joe Brown, the man, the myth, the legend, J. Brown, 1991, on Instagram. Uh, Cohen de who uh, makes our episode sound so much better than this one will, I think. Uh, you can find at Cohen de Um Snap him up, because if you want to, if you want him for audio work, I believe he's getting quite busy at the moment, and he's just the best. Um, yeah, you can email us at pressingissuespod at gmail.com. And yeah, tune back in next time. We'll be into some Dune content and then, spoiler warning, but I'm going to drop it. We're going to be doing some Spooktober Halloween October episodes. It's going to be a hoot. I won't drop what we're talking about, but, um, needless to say, it's going to be a very scary time for me to read and I think it will be fun for you to guys hear us talk about it but thanks as always for listening love you guys so so much and yeah catch you next time